But then for a woman to write a cookery book was also really unusual. A woman, a middle class woman, because cooking was what servants did, you know, <laughs> a nicely brought up middle class woman would never go into the kitchen, let alone cook, because she didn't want to get her, you know, clothes were expensive, how she looked was really important. So she didn't want to be dirty. She didn't want to smell of the kitchen. And it was deeply shameful to be thought of as so poor that you had to go into your own kitchen. Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers, aiming to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions and creative processes which led to the writing of these books. If you are a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. So here we are and the year is just running faster than anything you can imagine. And it's running because more books than I have ever seen in the whole of my life are coming across my desk. I literally fall over them because they're in the bathroom. One I dropped in the bath, but I've dried it, so it's fine. And, uh, and for the rest of it, it just, it just rises and rises and rises. And the local libraries are really excited. So welcome to PageCast. And this is Jonathan Ball's wonderful, wonderful podcast series where we get to talk to authors within their stable. And I hope you guys are going to enjoy it. And if not, why not? So, you know, and we're talking today about the language of food. Now, I know you've seen this book. I know some of you have read it, but I know lots of you haven't read it. But it is the most delicious cover you have ever seen. Just look at that. And on the copy that I've got on the back, it, it, it's full of little comments on the back. I think it's absolutely beautifully designed. And right at the beginning, it says, a recipe can be as beautiful as a poem. And I thought, that sounds so intriguing. And the author is Annabelle Abbs, and she joins us on the line. So, Annabelle, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. This is an absolute joy. Well, the book is an absolute joy. Before we get to the language of food, can we talk about that wonderful book of yours? In fact, I made some notes about it, uh, Windswept. And um, I was having lunch, actually, with your South African publisher the other day, and he gave me the copy of a book with five women, all of them um, feminists, but all of them from the, Rothschild, the English Rothschild family. And they're all potty, and, uh, and they've all done really interesting things to do with wildlife, to do with literature, to do... And your book, Windswept, just, just explain to everybody, because if I don't get my hands on it soon, I'm probably going to crack. Just explain what Windswept <laughs> is all about. <laughs> so I, I, think, I think Windswept should have arrived in South Africa, perhaps uh, the end uh, in last summer. I'm not quite sure, because sometimes the, the different countries publish at different times. But it's basically a book about how uh, several women um, found their voice, if you like, by walking, do, doing you know quite long walks, often walking on their own and often walking in quite remote places. And I wrote it because I'm a very keen walker and I was so fed up of reading about, you know, endlessly about Rousseau and Wordsworth and Thoreau and all these men who walked. And I, I about 10 years ago, I started thinking, well, have women never walked? You know, am I the only woman that likes to go for a walk? <laughs> and then when I started researching, of course, I found that hundreds of women have 
always walked and you know in the mountains and following rivers and coastlines and backpacking and for weeks on end and on their own or with their dog or with sometimes with their friends uh, and and had written about it but they were all sort of out of print or they'd been completely overlooked so one one great example actually was Simone de Beauvoir who Every every woman knows Simone de Beauvoir wrote The Second Sex. She's the, the, you know, the first feminist, really. Uh, but everyone just thinks about her and Jean-Paul Sartre. No one knows that she was a really hardcore walker. And it was during all these great long walks um, through the often often in the in the French Alps, but all over France, actually. And it was during these great long walks that I think she, you know, she really started to work out who she was and what her sort of philosophy of feminism was. And to sort out in her mind her relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre and, and other people, you know, the relationship she had with her mother and her father, it all got sorted out while she was walking and thinking about it. And it's all the way through her journals, it's all the way through her letters and her diaries. She talks about it constantly, but no one, none of her biographers ever mentioned it. So, and she was just typical. There were many other women like that whose walk, people just, and maybe people weren't interested in how a woman walks. Maybe that's just a new thing. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, but to me, it seemed really relevant. So that was where it, it came from. And I mean, I find walking, um, I used to go walking in Italy a lot before the prices went uh, bananas. But but for me, it was a meditation, a 10 day meditation. And, uh, and I think that's got a lot to do with it, isn't it? That solitude. Absolutely right. That's exactly what it is. And for each of these women, it was a different form of meditation. So for Georgia O'Keeffe, for example, it was a a really inspiring creative meditation because she would get all these ideas for paintings from you know from the way she was seeing things and the things she was finding so for her it was very creative for Simone de Beauvoir it was very liberating you know made her feel strong enough in her body she suddenly had got to develop this new relationship with her body when she realized oh I can walk up a mountain on my own with a backpack so it emboldened her then to to go on and sort of find that strength in her voice as well as in her body so so each of them walked in a different way but you're so right they are all meditations of of a sort so let's talk about eliza acton we're looking at 1830 something or other um an english woman um a spinster because she's in her 30s that's the worst word in the english language spinster and um and and there she is the family falls on hard times and she makes her name by cooking, but writing poetry like a recipe can be as beautiful as a poem. So there is a link between that wonderful walking book of yours and the independence of Eliza Acton, because she wanted, above all with her writing, to use her own name. Take us through that a little bit, because I can just remember George Eliot and thinking, what an odd name for a woman. But but of course it wasn't. Women actually couldn't get published unless they wrote ridiculous novels uh, under their own name. They just couldn't do it. Exactly. And of course we know that the Brontes went through the same thing and called themselves things like Ellis and Carabelle. So so women either were anonymous, so they would call them, it would be literally by anonymous, they just didn't have a name on it. Or the next thing was to say by a lady, and you could just about get away with by a lady, or the next thing was to take just to take a male name, which was the more normal. So hence, you know, Currabell and George Eliot. Uh, so so Eliza, from the very beginning, from her very first volume of poetry that she must have published when she was about 
25, 26, 27, that sort of mid 20s, she was determined to use her own name. So, so from an early age, there was something obviously quite um, bold and courageous about her because that, she wasn't, so she wasn't for an unmarried woman in her 20s to use her own name on poetry that was really quite emotional and quite um, frank and candid was uh, really unusual. So I knew from the minute I got hold of her poetry collection that she was going to be a little bit different. But then for a woman to write a cookery book was also really unusual. A woman, a middle class woman, because cooking was what servants did. You know, <laughs> a nicely brought up middle class woman would never go into the kitchen, let alone cook, because she didn't want to get her you know, clothes were expensive. How she looked was really important. So she didn't want to be dirty. She didn't want to smell of the kitchen. And it was deeply shameful to be thought of as so poor that you had to go into your own kitchen. So so that was also very, very bold. And then the fact that she wrote a cookery book and was happy to have her name on it. So in other words, she was happy for everyone to know that she had spent a lot of time in a dirty, smoky, sooty, hot kitchen with a servant. So um, so I knew I knew quite early on that she was she was different. And then, of course, there was the fact that she she didn't marry. But, you know, she wouldn't really have been able to marry having been that candid, I think. Um, so perhaps that opportunity. But I but my feeling was that she she wanted so badly to be independent that she probably would never have married despite the temptations. Because, of course, for many women, marriage was the way that you got an element of freedom. When you were married, you could do things. You could go out. You could go out in your carriage and things because you were missus. As a single woman, you were either uh, really just available, available to, to be married, or you were this dreadful thing, a spinster. And I didn't realise until I started researching how much abuse spinsters got. If you were uh, an, an older, un, or not even that old really, but you know, 30 plus, an older unmarried woman you were you were on the shelf you were deemed on the shelf which meant that no man wanted you which meant that you know there must be something you know terribly wrong with you uh so so and and then that that dreadful taint is with you then forever yeah old old maid old maid is the other term that was used old maid spinster and there were lots of really derogatory terms and i and again i was absolutely shocked to find how unwanted they were they were often used as free labor so, you know, a, a, usually a male relative, it could be a cousin, it could be an uncle, it could be a nephew. You know, they would say, you come and work for me. And, and the unmarried, the unmarried 30 something woman would have to go and be pretty much a sort of a unpaid housewife or look after the children. So Eliza managed to avoid that by the skin of her teeth, I suspect. Uh, and that was because she took a punt on writing a cookery book. And the other thing I really loved about her was she had never ever cooked before she agreed to this commission so so the story is and this is a true story we know this for a fact that she went with a second volume of poetry and she really wanted to be a poet and her first volume had been reasonably successful so she took her second collection of poems to her publisher in london and he just said no i, I you know i don't want i don't want poems you know no one wants to read poetry anymore bring me a cookery book which is, you know, can you imagine that happening now to someone who's never, ever boiled an egg? It's just sort of, sort of, we can't even imagine uh, being asked to produce a book on something that you know nothing about. 
But he must have spotted, in fairness to him, he must have spotted in her something. He saw something in her and he knew that she would be able to do it. And it was probably, he, he recognised perhaps that she was a good writer. And he also recognised, I think, that she was very orderly and methodical because her poetry is, well, I mean, poetry is a very condensed and structured, isn't it? Particularly back then, there was, there was no free form verse, you know, it was all about uh, having a rhyming couplet and it was very, very tightly structured. So he must have somehow spotted in her that that, that could that could that ability to write a, a poem could be moved over uh, and made into an ability to write a beautiful recipe, which, of course, then is what she did. So she, I mean, normally a woman in her situation would never have agreed to write a cookery book, but her circumstances changed very suddenly and her her father was made bankrupt. They lost absolutely everything. They had to sell every single thing in their house, every carpet, every book, it all had to go. And the father, her father had to disappear. He had to flee to France because if he had stayed here, he would have been locked up in prison. Because if you, if you, you know, if you went bust, then you went to prison. So he fled and suddenly Eliza, who's one of 11 children, the one, one, was, one had died by this point, so she's one of 10 children, and her, and her mother, who's effectively sort of widowed, really, she's got no income now. So Eliza, very cannily, I think, agreed to do the cookery book. And then somewhere in that process, she obviously really, she discovered a real genuine love of food and cooking, because her book is so beautifully written. And you read her recipes, and you want to cook, you want to cook them. Right at the very beginning of the book, uh, so I'm on page 37, 38, if anybody wants to know where this is coming from. And, uh, and Eliza is helping to pack up the family house, go to Tonbridge, where they were going to take in boarders, and she was going to cook because there was nobody else. They couldn't afford the cook anymore. So she goes into the kitchen, which she hasn't seen very often, and there is a cook in there. And um, and the cook who doesn't follow them to Tunbridge waves a juddering arm across the table at the tins and glass jars and earthenware pots. All at once, a shaft of thin northern light swoops over them, jolting them into luminous life. Bubbled glass jars of briny green peppercorns, salted capers, gleaming vanilla pods, rusted cinnamon sticks, all gleeping and glinting. The, study, the sudden startling beauty of it, the palette of hues, ochre, terracotta, shades of earth and sand and grass, the pale trembling light, all thoughts of running a boarding house vanish. So my sense was that you were, you were writing your own poetry through Eliza because she must have seen some of this as she gradually awakened to, to the journey that she was going on willy-nilly and fell in love with food. Yes, no, I think that's right. So we know that she spent some time in, definitely in France and possibly in Italy, where she had obviously been exposed to, you know, different flavours and food that had stayed with her, because again, that comes through in her cookery book. She'll talk about things that she ate in, in France and there's, there's Italian dishes. There's, there's a few things that you think, well, how does she know about that? So, so she obviously liked eating. So, so it's quite clear from her recipes that she enjoyed food, which is, again, very different from Mrs. Beaton. You read her recipes and she really doesn't even like eating, let alone cooking, whereas Eliza Acton did. But I think she probably came to cookery writing, yes, through poetry and something in, in food and in the look of them and the, the look of ingredients and the smell of it all 
would have incited her poetic imagination. So that I was, so I tried to capture that. Yes. So I'm wondering whether Eliza Acton would have been as successful as she was. I mean, it did take her ten years uh, to write the book, and it was quite a large book as well. So you can, and and she was doing things that no cook before her had done. She was measuring the recipes. Uh, because nobody nobody did that, and she was also giving precise ingredients, which nobody, it would be like, um, take a badger's leg, uh, the thought of it makes me quite ill, but uh, take a badger's leg, um, put it under, you know, hot coals in a tub of water, let it cook for five, six, seven hours. There was nothing precise. So people like uh, Louis Leipold did that as well, as a famous South African cook. And it, but it was like um, grill a warthog, first skin it, and um, and you know writing like that. But he also didn't give anything that was that was precise, and he cooked on coal uh, the whole time. But I'm wondering whether Eliza would have been as successful, or the book as successful, had she not discovered the wonderful Anne Kirby. Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. So, so she works with Anne and we know this from the, cen you know, the censuses that show that Anne is in the house in 1845, 1835 and Anne is still in the house in 1845 and then Anne disappears and is found somewhere else. So they're together for at least 10 years and that was really, really unusual. So back then, um, you know, being a, being a servant was a bit like working in the catering industry, you know, very fast turnover. And the average length of time that a servant stayed in a family was one year. That was the average. Uh, and, and many stayed, you know, for a few months and then they would go for to try and get higher pay or a, a position closer to their family or to their you know, fiance or whatever it was. So there, there was a lot of movement. But Anne is with Eliza for 10 years. So that was quite unusual in the same house. And the other thing that was quite unusual was that in terms of producing a cookery book, they would have been a, a cookery book of that size with with uh, Eliza who can't cook, they would have been thrown together. They would have been in this sort of, again, this this dark, smelly, you know, all kitchens faced north. They didn't have much light. Um, they were smoky and sooty because they were cooking over coal. Uh, and they would say so they'd been in this little space together for, for 10 years. I mean, I don't think I could do that with my own husband, <laughs> probably without murdering him. <laughs> and yet they, and they survived. Of course, all the way through the cookery book, Eliza talks about we, we tried this, we thought this, we preferred it this way, we preferred it that way, or, you know, we, we, we had a hotter, hotter coals for this or whatever it was. So there's always that sense that there's someone else there. And of course, she wouldn't have been allowed to give any um, credence, really, to Anne or to give any credit to Anne. She would have had to make it look as if it was just herself. But she, by, by saying we all the way through, any reader knows that there's someone else working really closely with her. And I also and, and I also guessed, and I could have been wrong with this, but guessed that Anne probably would have helped Eliza in some way because Eliza knew nothing. You know, how do you just start teaching yourself to cook when you've never cooked um, at such a level that you can produce a, a 600 page cookery book? So I, in my imagination, Anne, who obviously would have come from a very different background, uh, Anne would have been helping her in little ways, perhaps even just to understand how to make a fire, you know, because Eliza, she, what, would she, what would she have known about how to draw water out of a well or make a fire? <laughs> so I think the relationship was probably uh, very, very symbiotic with each one helping the other in quite a different way. And I loved the idea of that. 
uh, of, of, you know, the middle class woman who's fallen on hard times, developing this bond with someone who's come from, you know, obviously a very poor background. Uh, so that's so that's of course, and their their relationship is one of the main themes of the of the novel, and which I've had to imagine because I don't know that Eliza died with well, she had a will, I assume she had a will, but the will has never been discovered. No letters. It looks as though everything was destroyed, and again, that makes sense because we know that her death certificate was signed by her sister. So her sister was obviously in there in her house signing off her death certificate and. Quite possibly, I'm speculating, it's quite possible that she would have found all of this rather shameful and she would have just got rid of all of the, uh, any letters, any manuscripts, you know, she perhaps didn't want her sister to be known as a, a, a cook. <laughs> so everything went. So I didn't have any material other than the poems and, and, the, and her two cookery books. Um, but fortunately, Eliza has a really clear voice. I've got, I had no voice for Anne at all. Uh, so I had to imagine that. But Eliza's voice is very clear in her recipes. You know, she's quite um, she's quite outspoken. She's very clear in what she thinks. She was very, very keen. No, she was ahead of her time. She was very keen on nutrition. She was very keen on eating people eating fresh fruit and vegetables. And, and she called sugar a poison. So, you know, she just seemed incredibly modern in that way. Um, and so later on, she becomes quite a camp, you know, real campaigner for for good quality food and unprocessed food. You know, she's really, really against processed food. And when I was researching this, I was, I was thinking processed food, you know, in 1845. But of course, that's when processed food is starting to appear. Custard powder for the first time. It's when people are starting to buy fast food off the street. Uh, because everyone suddenly is working in mills and in factories rather than and growing their own you know, fruit and vegetables and living off the land. So you've got that whole shift going on. Uh, and she's very opposed to people eating, eating bad, adulterated food. So I think she'd be quite at home today. You know, she'd be running lots of campaigns on organic eating and <laughs> unprocessed food. And... Anne Kirby, 17, more or less, when she... She's almost totally imagined, except we know that she lived. And therefore, your surmise is, is probably 100% correct. I'm fascinated by the research that you must have done. Because, because there wasn't... I mean, you had to know all of the other cookbooks that were, that were around at that particular time. You had to have a knowledge of them, at the very least. And that might have sent you on all sorts of other journeys. I mean, I think occasionally, I mean, there's this wonderful, it wasn't an affair that Eliza had, although she clearly probably did have an affair, which is one of the reasons why probably her sister destroyed uh, any references to love and loss. Loss comes in a, a great deal. But, but Eliza, her mother, is so desperate to marry her off and she meets a gentleman who specializes in spices. And uh, although there isn't a gentleman who specializes in spices that can be linked to Anne, nonetheless, she's quite interested in curry. Um, and the, the man that maybe she might have married, except she couldn't, um, because she in, in the end decided to do her own thing. Interesting journey, deciding what she was going to cook. I mean, was it going to be oysters? Uh, uh, because the food is so different. Um, some of it, uh, um, what messy strangled prose this lady uses, um, some of it is barely comprehensible. None of it um, 
conjures the exquisite sensation of a fresh oyster, briny and sharp rock pool like at dawn upon the unsuspecting uh, tongue. So, so uh, th this runs throughout, but you also had to study the food that people were eating at that time. And I know in the Victorian era, they also had India, part of the empire, uh, so that was bringing spices and all sorts of other th things to to uh, Britain, in fact. But I think that must have been a significant part of your your research. Yes, and I think it was also one of the reasons that she was asked to write a cookery book in the first place, because suddenly um, Britain was full of uh, spices and imported fruit and vegetables, and um, meat was coming. Yeah, meat was coming in from all over the place. And people hadn't cooked, particularly the spices and things like lemons were suddenly available and dried fruits, although they had been around for a while. But a lot of the um, sort of newly middle class women didn't know what to do with a cinnamon stick or, you know, a, a husk of mace. So that was the other thing that the publisher spotted. He spotted this opportunity that suddenly you've got this new uh, sort of new middle class, really. And you've got women who perhaps have, have, have sort of moved up and they've married someone who was a, a sort of trader and he's now become a merchant and suddenly the wife is in this elevated position and she's got to entertain his friends and you know she's grown up living off vegetable soup so suddenly she's got a cook and she needs to tell the cook what to make and, and help the cook so you've got that going on and then you've got all these new ingredients coming in and, and quite possibly the husband saying well all my you know all my friends are eating curry <laughs> can't we have curry and you know, poor new wife is like curry. Gosh, you know, what do I? How do I make a curry? So she's so she's producing recipes that that sort of that sort of newly middle class youngish wife, as she calls she calls them the young housekeepers of England. She's producing a book that that woman can use to help her husband get on in life by you know producing a curry for his for his friends. So, so Mr. So the character that she, in my imagination, in the novel she nearly marries, is a character who, a man who appears repeatedly throughout the cookery book. He's called Mr. Arnott, and there's quite a few recipes: Mr. Arnott's curry powder and Mr. Arnott's curried fowl and things. So she obviously knew a man called Mr. Arnott who liked curry, and may well have worked for the East India Company or been a spice importer or trader. Um, so, so I, I used, so I used, I used as much as I could from her cookery book. In fact, I spent, I spent a lot of time. I sort of cooked my way into her. I cooked all her dishes, well, not all of them, because a lot of them are some, some of them are quite strange. But I cooked lots of them, and by cooking her recipes, I could see that she, you know, I, I could see that she had obviously spent time abroad because she was, she was quite knowledgeable about about certain things. And um, I also got a sense of what it was like to be in a kitchen and God, how physical it was, you know, just, you know, she must have been strong, physically strong, because, you know, whisking 12 egg whites by hand is something that takes a lot of elbow grease and also quite a long time. So, uh, so she must be in the kitchen for a very long time as well, long, working long, long hours. And, and, and it's, and it's, you know, it's very, very physical. And we've forgotten that because we all use, you know, kitchen aids and we just press a button and the eggs are whisked. But it just wasn't like that for her. It would have been very, uh, yeah, dirty and physical. Um, so I think I've just gone right off your question there. <laughs> well, never mind. Let's talk about you. I mean, the, you've answered it in a, in, a, in a lovely way. I was 
absolutely in love with your chapter headings. And I think that you must have just had enormous amounts of fun because it's like basin of broth thickened with arrowroot. And that's a chapter heading. Another one, crab apple jelly. But it all pertains to something. Um, very good lemon creams, for instance. Swan's eggs, uh, swan's egg en salade. Well, that is French. I mean, if ever there was. Uh, and of course, I didn't know that you could get swan's eggs because I thought they belonged to the Queen. Oh, they do. They do. But then people did eat swan's eggs. So she got hold of swan's eggs to make that recipe. So that's just at the beginning of Victoria's reign. So it may have been that Queen Victoria then came down and stamped down on that one and said, stop eating my swan's eggs. <laughs> but all of, the, um, all of those recipes are all from her, from her cookery book. And they're all things that, uh, as you say, linked to what's happening in the chapter, but also things that I had cooked and um, fiddled around with myself. So you knew. So Eliza says um, at, 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 I think, a reasonably early stage in the book that she dreams of a time when people read recipe books for pleasure as they read novels or verse. And for many of us, I think lots and lots of young women go into, I don't know, whatever relationship they choose to go into. They don't, they're not necessarily cooks, they're not necessarily interested or whatever. But for some of them, it is the beginning of a journey. And I can clearly remember um, when I moved, married and moved to, um, to the Un uh, United Kingdom, coming across Elizabeth David and uh, being absolutely entranced by her recipes because there was nothing like that, I can tell you, in Africa. There just wasn't. And, and, there, and, and she also had a shop in Covent Garden. I had two of her saucepans until fairly recently, which is, you know, quite a long time. But I was, it, it, it smelt of Italy, it smelt of France. It, you could taste the garlic, you could, she, she, you literally could sit in bed or lie propped up on, on pillows and you could read Elizabeth David. And she knew Eliza Acton. And so many yeah. of, of today's contemporary cooks um, also knew Eliza Acton and they found something in her and I, one of them described her as um, England's greatest cook, in England's first great cook. And yes. so what was it that set Eliza apart from, say, the woman I now dislike intensely, Mrs Beaton? <laughs> That's your fault. <laughs> oh, poor, poor Isabella Beaton. I feel a bit sorry for her. <laughs> she didn't have a great life. Um, so, so when I inherited the 200 cookery books, a lot of them were, well, in fact, there's some Elizabeth Davids in there, some lovely first edition Elizabeth Davids, who I adore. But there were lots that were pre-Eliza Acton. So as you said earlier, when you read them, you can't really make head or tail of them. They don't have an ingredients list. So Eliza Acton sort of invented the recipe as we know it, really. And they were all, they weren't very well written. So you'd read it and you couldn't make sense of it. And then you wouldn't really feel like cooking it because it didn't conjure up any of the, you know, the smells or taste. It was just, you know, take 25 eggs, throw in a flour, you know, put it on a hot fire. <clears throat> so it was um, <clears throat> complicated to decipher. 
but also not inspiring. So what Eliza does, well, what Eliza does for the Victorians is exactly what Elizabeth David did for people in the 1950s and 60s. So she, absolutely, she's a forerunner really, because she makes you want to cook them. And it's exactly like Elizabeth David, you know, I can go to bed and read my Eliza Acton cookbook and, you know, it just sort of lulls me to sleep. And Elizabeth David is exact. I just love Elizabeth David's prose. So Elizabeth David was very inspired by Eliza Acton, as were people like, uh, later people like uh, Delia. Delia Smith was a big fan of uh, Eliza Acton. Uh, and I think in, in Delia, what Delia likes about Eliza Acton is, again, that the fact that it's for, everything is tested, everything is measured. There's lots of comments about how if you cook it for this long, this will happen. So I think Delia really liked all of that, the structure and the order. Um, I mean, she may have liked the prose too. But for me, uh, with Eliza, it was the just this beautiful, beautiful prose. And she was, and I think that again is her poetic background because she she had trained herself to be a to be a poet rather than to be a, a measurer of ingredients. But so so yes, yeah, so when I started saying, oh, I think I was saying no one's ever heard of her. Quite a lot of chefs said, oh, she's quite well known in the chef circles. You know, we know who she is. Um, they didn't know anything about her, but they knew that she was really the beginning of the cookery book that we know and love today, which is the one you take to bed and, and, and look and sort of read through for pleasure. She was the first of that whole uh, trend, which is the way cookery books are now, aren't they? They're all beautiful. I mean, hers, hers even had pictures and most didn't have pictures before. So she sort of pioneers the, the cookbook that we know and love. Um, but, but, her, but because of Mrs. Beaton sort of just dominating that whole food writing uh, scene in, in Victorian England, no one really knows about Eliza other than, other than chefs and professional food historians. So Eliza really got lost in, in Mrs. Beaton's <coughs> shadow. But if, if you, so, so Mrs. Beaton's biographer, Catherine Hughes, when she was writing Mrs. Beaton's biography, which I think was maybe 10, 15 years ago, she went through all the recipes and realised that a third of Mrs. Beaton's recipes were actually Eliza Acton's and Mrs. Beaton had done something very clever. She would either just change the title or she would just take the writing wasn't the same. She would just take out some of the delicious writing and just change it with very functional writing. But they were to all extents and purposes plagiarised. Um, but then Mrs. Beaton was a journalist. She was a queen. She was really queen of cut and paste. She'd have been very happy here on the Internet today, you know, because she would just she just cut and paste things and then put them all together. She didn't actually cook them and she probably didn't eat them, but she was very good at pulling them all together and, and sort of them making it look uh, relevant and, and sort of marketable. But if she died, if she was 28 when she died. Everyone thinks that Mrs. Beaton was this sort of doughty, doughty, feisty little old woman. But by 28, she had died uh, quite possibly of syphilis that she caught from her husband. So a, re a really tragic story. And then it was her husband who turned her into this name the famous name mrs peaton so so i do feel a bit sorry for her as well even though i'm always saying that she she took a no well i mean but, but also that is part of the victorian experience isn't it i mean and the experience of women you know for well for centuries basically and uh yeah. you know syphilis a dreadful dreadful thing to to happen to anyone eliza died i think she was 59 uh, when she yeah. died, but she was already a success. I mean, 125,000 copies sold over a period of time made her a, a, a wealthy and independent woman. I mean, I think reading through through this book, I think anybody who reads it 
It's just want, going to go on a journey. You might not necessarily want to cook yourself. You, you Really, you might not. But but it's just this journey. And the story is very poignant. And um, and I think people can relate to it as well. I, I loved Anne Kirby. And I know... I know Anne is a creation, and we know she lived, but she is from your imagination. She is imagined. Um, but, but a wonderful 17-year-old becoming a mature woman eventually and, um, and leaving uh, Eliza's um, employ. So I, I think it's a, it's a fabulous read, and it's, I found it very emotional as well, um, the ups and the downs. And you kept imagining the life that women like us um, lived, and um, uh, and there's some very distressing scenes that that uh, that you researched. I just want to, before we finish, Lady Montefiore, tell us a little bit about her because um, you write about um, um, uh, Lady Montefiore, and she was Jewish, and of course Simon Seabag Montefiore, uh, also Jewish, and he was came out here for the Franschuk Literary Festival a couple of years ago and um and uh, took it by storm and uh, a very very interesting writer himself but obviously also from the same i would have thought the same family um because he well jenny let me just i'm going to interrupt you and tell you a quick story <laughs> so when the when the book was all you know ready and and my publisher in the uk was sending it out to other writers you know as they do to to get a quote or see if they like it or whatever I didn't know, but she sent it out to Santa Montefiore, who is Simon's wife. I didn't know any of this. <laughs> and then Santa sent an email back saying, you know, lots of lovely things about the book. And then halfway through her email, she said, and imagine my surprise when I got to page, whatever it is, 145 and discovered Simon's great, great grandmother. <laughs> so she was, she was Simon's either great grandmother or great, great grandmother, great, great grandmother, I think. And, um, and, uh, and of course, she didn't know that Lady Judith was in the book and I didn't know the book was going to Santa. So that was all really <laughs> quite strange. So, yes, they are the same family. I mean, direct, direct. He's a direct descendant of her. Well, actually, he can't be. Actually, no, he can't be a direct descendant of her because she didn't have any children. So he must be and he must be uh, her. Yeah, one of her nephews or nieces would have been his uh, grandmother, great-grandmother. Yeah, so she would be what, a great-great-aunt or something. But she is an extraordinary woman. I, I mean, absolutely amazing. And I would love to write her story, but I, I feel that really is the story that probably belongs to a, a Jewish writer because she spoke six languages. She helped set up Palestine. She wrote the first ever, anonymous, the first ever Jewish cookery book, which sold recently at auction for vast amounts of money because it, there were very few of them and it's a very, very rare, which, which was, I think, I can't remember whether she put by a lady or just anonymous, but certainly didn't have her name on. And she was, and then she set up soup kitchens in the East End of London for, for you know, people that couldn't afford to eat. You know, she would be there handing out the soup. Yeah, she was absolutely way ahead of her time. And we know also that she and Eliza met because they both lived in Kent and then they both lived in London and uh, there are lots of or the, uh, Jew, uh, Eliza is the first writer ever to have a section on Jewish cookery so that was the first indicator and in fact Lady Judith's book came out a year after Eliza's and also there's lots of little references in Eliza's book to you know, I have discovered this wonderful Jewish butcher <laughs> in you know a certain part of London 
And her bio, Eliza Actor's biographer, sort of found out that the two of them had met. So how friendly they were, I don't know. But the chances are they would have met and discussed food and Jewish recipes. Um, and I loved that. I loved, I loved the, like, these two really independent, spirited women, so, so trapped and constrained by, you know, the society they lived in, but finding each other and then finding their own sort of voice, really, in their own ways, one anonymously and one with her, with her own name. We started this, uh, people are listening to this wonderful Jonathan Ball page cast, but I just want to say to anybody, and I know I'm talking to all of you, um, you know, go out and buy this book because it actually doesn't end. I mean, it just goes on and on. So there's, there's a, <laughs> I mean, I think you didn't want to end this book. So, so uh, you, you finish the story and, and then I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, why are there so many other pages, for goodness sake? So, of course, you come to um, a note on characters, then you come to poems, then you come to uh, recommended reading, then you come to author's notes. Uh, by that, I, uh, honestly, Annabelle, I just knew you did not want to end this. Acknowledgements, uh, and then I think there's nothing left after acknowledgements, but there's some of uh, Eliza's recipes. And, uh, and then it just, goes, it just goes on. What a little treasure this book honestly and truly is. And I have loved talking to you. And thank you very, very much indeed for joining us for PageCast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes.